listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. All right, back on Money Talk, and it's time for Your Money. Today, Carolyn Wright finds out how the tokenization of real-world asset works and what advantages it can offer to everyday investors. Good morning, Carolyn. Good morning. In a recent conversation in Your Money, we took a look at the tokenization of assets, where we mentioned the tokenization of real-world assets, but we didn't get the chance to dive into that. So let's do that now. I'm joined by Hamilton Keats, who is CEO and co-founder of Crayon, which is a supplier of wallet solutions for securing digital assets. Thanks for joining me today, Hamilton. Thank you for having me. Let's kick off with a look at how tokenization of real-world assets works specifically. Can you explain? So I guess there are a lot of variables here, depending on the type of asset you're tokenizing. A lot of the topics that tend to come up recently are around commodities like gold, where people are trying to tokenize gold by putting it on the chain. But I guess the most interesting topic for me personally is looking at equities and funds and debt, moving those assets on chain. Um, I don't know if you necessarily say they're real world assets as they're not physical assets, but I certainly think of them as more real world or real economy than uh, most tokens that are created today. I, I can totally understand why you're at that. We, we, you know, there's a lot of people who question what is a, a, a real asset and what's a digital asset kind of thing. Exactly, exactly. Um, but, you know, it certainly helped in terms of pushing progress uh, in the space. I mean, a lot of people trying to tokenize things like real estate under the guise of it improving liquidity. But the reality is if you don't have the distribution, or you don't have the demand, then you're not really going to increase liquidity there. So I think the bigger opportunities to be had are around tokenizing equities. So I'm talking about listed equities companies like Tesla, which everyone loves to buy shares in, um, taking forward legacy infrastructure such as the London Stock Exchange or the New York Stock Exchange and tokenizing shares in private companies so that they can be put onto either a private blockchain or a public blockchain and traded on those networks rather than how they work today. So that's how you kind of see the, the world of tokenization of assets developing, that it's actually sort of a new function of what we see very much as the traditional financial market. Yeah, I think the traditional financial markets have come a long way in the last couple of decades, right? So we've moved from trading pink sheets and paper, but all we've really done is digitize a lot of manual paper processes. So you still have physical share certificates, physical bond certificates, uh, bearer bonds in today's market. And a lot of what's happened in the digitization behind the scenes has just been to take those processes and try and gain more automation or more or optimize these processes by digitizing them. But really, there's not been a structural shift in the infrastructure, which is what you're going to see with tokenization, where the actual contracts themselves are digital rather than physical contracts that are held in a database somewhere or physical share certificates that are held somewhere that are then digitized and this database record represents a digital certificate elsewhere. With tokenization of such assets, what we're doing is we're actually 
from inception, it is a digital asset from the very beginning. So you're rewriting the entire infrastructure, which is what's most exciting for me, especially when you look at funds in particular and the way that they operate today, which is absolutely insane when you dive into it. Let's take a dive into that and talk about the tokenization of of funds and how that can maybe help ordinary investors to get involved. Because we can talk about things like fractionalization maybe here. Yeah, definitely. I mean, fractionalization is, is an interesting one. I think a lot of people like it uh, in terms of equity markets when you have particular prices, the share price of a particular stock is too high for a retail investor to buy in. You know, if it's a couple hundred thousand dollars in the extreme case of something like Berkshire Hathaway, or even if it's a couple thousand dollars when you have, you know, Amazon stock running up and then they have to do a share split in order to reduce the price. A lot of firms handle this right now by essentially running an omnibus account where because they're holding the asset on your behalf, they will also buy some in principle. So let's say a stock is $10,000, just for for this example, and you want to go and buy $1,000 of the stock, they'll actually be holding it in their name and as nominee for you. So when you go and buy $1,000 of this stock, the people that are enabling fractionalization right now, what happens is they just allocate in their database a record of you owning $1,000 or having the right to $1,000 worth of the $10,000 of stock that they have. It gets more complicated when you start to look at funds as funds have, in certain cases, they have minimum ticket sizes of 100000 upwards or institutional share classes with lower management fees and better rates, but at much, much higher entry levels, you're talking kind of five, ten million dollar ticket size to buy in. So tokenization, I mean, doesn't necessarily increase the distribution because you still have to onboard the buyers and then you have to deal with the regulatory landscape as well as in terms of where you can sell an asset. But what it does is make the administration of that much more efficient because I can sell parts of a token, right? It can go down into units of a decimal place. Whereas what I can't do is take a share of Tesla, which might be trading at $500 and split that into five pieces and split it up between people. Okay. So Am I making sense? Here? You you absolutely are. So I think this is about one, making the whole process a lot more efficient and two, breaking down the barriers to people's access to markets and assets that they might be interested in owning a part of. I think my next question would be about how to keep things safe. You know, we've heard a, a, a lot of scary things around the blockchain world and, and, and more to do with bad actors than anything else. So let's let's talk about how blockchain can really offer advantages here in terms of keeping your assets safe and kind of keeping those records that you're mentioning instead of like bits of paper floating around and old fashioned uh, certificates and all that kind of thing. I think also just on, on that point you made, I think you made a very important distinction regarding the accessibility and lowering the barriers to entry because most people talk about that as being improving liquidity but as i touched on it does improve accessibility but that doesn't mean it necessarily creates more demand for a thing either there are buyers or or there aren't but going back to your latest question regarding security it's definitely a massive 
problem. And really the main problem is when we look at public blockchains in particular. So I, I need to probably clarify the difference between a private blockchain and, and a public blockchain. And a public blockchain is something like Ethereum or Polygon, which is decentralized and, and operated by a network of validators globally. So no one person can change the ledger on that network, right? It's a consensus mechanism. Yeah. So what it does is it's basically a group of people globally or, or computers globally, and it can be anyone that participates in, in the network, is maintaining a decentralized ledger which says these assets on this network belong to this wallet address. And that's where you run into problems with security because a wallet address is controlled by a private key and private keys can be stolen very easily in many cases. It's just so like a password, most, isn't it? It's, <laughs> if, in it, simple it terms. almost like a password. <laughs> yes. In simple terms, it, it is a password. And what this does is enable you, it, it, having this password, essentially this private key, gives you control over that wallet address and the ability to transfer assets in and out of that wallet address. So in many cases when exploits occur, typically with hot wallets like MetaMask, um, which most people, especially in the decentralized finance world, use, the private key is held on your device, on your laptop or on your phone. Now, if someone gets access to that remotely or physically, they can easily steal that private key because it's stored on the device and it's open, making it much easier to steal your assets. And it's not like we can suddenly go to the regulator. You know, if we're in the US, we can go to the SEC or in the UK, the FCA and say, oh my God, they stole our assets. Where, you know, where's the recourse? Or, you know, go to JP Morgan and say, hey, I want my money back. Can you roll back that transaction? Which can happen in traditional markets. But in these decentralized networks, it's impossible to do so. So it all comes down to how we manage custody of those private keys to secure those networks. And if we, obviously, if we want to bring more traditional finance onto public or even private blockchains, the security of those private keys is critical for the success of that. I think there's a lot more we need to talk about here on this, Hamilton, but we do not have time today. So hopefully you can speak to me again and we can talk a great deal more about custody because I feel you're excellent at explaining it all to me. <laughs> so so thank you very much for joining me today. That's Hamilton Keats, who is CEO and co-founder of Crayon.